Amazing. Charity Wright, excited to have you on the Dark Mode podcast. Saw you deliver a presentation last November at Hack Sydney and met you through the recorded future Aussie team. Big shout out to Nick and the crew there. Really enjoy your content. So really looking forward to talking about all of those themes on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here and to see you again. Great to see you, Charity. So all things realm of intelligence, disinformation, geopolitical effects, cyberspace, things are very, very topical at the moment. I'd like to just dive headfirst into understanding from your perspective the topic of malign influence. Would you like to take us through what that entails? Absolutely. So we hear a lot about influence operations, and usually we hear terms like disinformation, misinformation, and fake news. That's particularly what we're looking at. Essentially, we as cybersecurity professionals and information security professionals, part of our job is to protect the integrity of information. And even though we are protecting that information that's flowing in and out of our networks and our companies, um, there are other people that are responsible for kind of managing narratives that are impacting our countries as well. So from a very high level um, perspective, what we're doing is we're looking at who is trying to manipulate information in negative ways that could impact the security of your organization, your country, um, national security, and things like that. Yeah, great way to start the episode. We've got a few things prepared, Charity, but who is influencing the narrative? Like at, at a most global level, who are the main actors? And would you actually have any insights into the Asia-Pacific region by that same token as well? Absolutely. So we really start at nation-state level. We have many different threat actors, you could say, or malign influence actors participating in this malign activity. Nation states, not excluding the United States and all of our, you know, the countries where we live, there is always some kind of narrative being put out to portray your organization in a certain way. Political parties do it, governments do it, but what we're really focusing in on is who's manipulating the information in ways that are untruthful or trying to manipulate it in a way that is trying to convince the world of something that is not completely true. So while most of our governments are conducting some kind of influence operations to, let's say, win the hearts and minds of people in the audience, we are really focusing in on nation states like Russia and how they're trying to manipulate narratives about what's happening in Ukraine. And we're also focusing on China who are really going about it kind of a different way, trying to convince the world that they are a responsible nation state or government that does care about human rights and is trying to establish themselves around the world as a trusted partner. So oftentimes their narratives don't always look negative. Oftentimes it's pro-China stories about China, stories about what it's like to live in China, and trying to kind of dismiss and cover up any of the criticism that they receive from United States, NATO, and the West in general. So they try to cover up like 
reports about human rights abuses in Xinjiang or maybe mishandling COVID lockdowns, protests over COVID lockdowns, and now very high rates of death due to COVID. And what they do is they try to instead tell stories about the good things that the Chinese Communist Party is doing around the world. So it's very interesting. You've got the nation state actors that are really trying to take control of the stories being told. And then we also have criminal disinformation as a service threat actors. Those are, let's say, individuals, groups, or even marketing companies or PR companies that sell their services for a price. They can create fake news. They can stand up fake news websites. They can go on social media and leave negative reviews about your competitor or about your own company if you are being targeted. So essentially, it comes down to usually nation state intelligence agencies and military units and also criminal disinformation as a service. And oftentimes now we're seeing them partner with legitimate or semi-legitimate marketing and PR companies that pose as, oh, sure, we'll do marketing for whatever you want, even if it's a smear campaign. Really well explained, Charity. Thank you for taking us through that. Nation states and cyber criminal threat actors. You, we've all heard of ransomware as a service, but I think this is the first time someone's laid it out for me to say cyber criminal disinformation as a service. What a world we're living in. I know. Wow. It's pretty scary, especially because it's really difficult to find these campaigns and detect or or determine who exactly is behind them. Yeah. Really interesting to see how the technological advancements help us apply attribution to these sort of narratives as well and how we can actually think critically. I see there's a lot of startups, a lot of technology, a lot of advisors, a lot of intelligence people in this community looking to combat these threats. And I think it's a really remarkable domain or really interesting domain of the cyberspace we live in to actually deter and understand these type of threats because they're not necessarily the you know, misconfiguration in a softball type narrative that we're used to speaking as technologists or even just looking at conventional warfare tactics and the like. But it's like we're living in such a multifaceted world now and even reading something the disinformation campaigns and the like is really profound in this modern era. And I don't think that's as easy to analyze or see on the surface level as some of those other more conventional tactics that have been deployed in the past. You're very right about that. That's been part of my personal vendetta over the past couple of years is to raise awareness of this type of threat because coordinated influence operations have been around for all of history. I mean, dating back to, you know, the beginning of warfare between humans, people have always been trying to manipulate what the enemy thinks, um, kind of play mind games and mess with them. And unfortunately, today, these types of campaigns do have a very real impact on the world. For example, propaganda inside Russia, the narratives that the Kremlin is spreading inside Russia has literally convinced the majority of their population that Ukraine was full of Nazis. And the reason Russia had to invade was to denazify Ukraine. And they try to appeal to their audience, their domestic audience, by reminding them 
of the harm that the Nazi party and Nazism had on Russia back during World War II. And they tried to remind them, hey, we're not going to let this happen here, even though the narratives about Nazis having taken over Ukraine were very false. So they continue to push anti-West, anti-U.S., and anti-NATO narratives inside Russia to try to win over their domestic audience to the plans that the Kremlin has for Ukraine. It's a wild, wild concept to me, and everyone's sitting back like, oh, Ben's there. I am learning a lot today, so this is talking intelligence. So I'm just going to put myself on mute. I've got dictionary.com open on my other screen, and I'm just constantly learning about different words you're using right now. But Charity, it's such a broad spectrum landscape that malign influence is being deployed and has been deployed in previous times, as you just mentioned, through propaganda, et cetera. As an intelligence analyst, applying these ways of thinking to threat research is so valuable. Could you run us through what the diamond model is and how it's used to analyze influence operations more broadly? Yeah, we, when our team, we have a global issues team in SICT group, which is our research team. We decided to go ahead and start looking at malign influence. And we kind of looked at all of the frameworks that are already out there because there's been amazing researchers, academics, think tanks that have put their heads together on how do we analyze disinformation today? How do we find it? How do we detect it? How can we automate that process? But basically, the frameworks that were already in existence, each one identified a crucial aspect of an influence campaign, but I didn't see anything that kind of fit it all together like a big puzzle. And so our goal was to create a framework that kind of pieced it all together into one big picture so that analysts can identify uh, separate pieces of an influence campaign and then piece it together and say, okay, this is what is going on with this particular operation. So when we set out to do that, I, as a cyber threat analyst, I always have the diamond model for intrusion analysis in front of me. And I thought this would work really well for malign influence because there is a technical axis and a sociopolitical axis. And what we're identifying is essentially the malign influencer or adversary, which is across from the audience or the victim. So we change some terms around. The normal diamond model calls it adversary and victim. But in our world, analyzing stories and media, it fits a little better to call them influencers and audience. And then on the technical axis, it's the same. Infrastructure and capabilities or TTPs, basically. So these four and I know that I'm going to know that you're a visual person. So as Charity explains that, here we are. Charity, I love this. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is great. <laughs> I'm also a visual person, which is why I love the diamond model. As you can see on the screen here, the red boxes are the socio-political axis of influencer and audience. And then the dark blue boxes are the technical axis, which is capabilities and infrastructure. And what we discovered was that wasn't quite enough. So what really ties together an influence campaign is the narrative. And narrative is just another word for story. Essentially, we as humans are hardwired 
to understand information through storytelling, which is why legends and stories and holy books have been passed down for generations is because we understand things when it's put into context. So the narrative is kind of the story that the influencer is telling the audience. So it ties them together. And it also is carried out through infrastructure and through various capabilities. So we pieced together this version of the diamond model. And of course, we passed it by the original authors of the diamond model for intrusion analysis. And we are very lucky to have them as friends. They reviewed it and they said, this is great because they wrote the original diamond model to be dynamic, to change with new threats and to be able to adapt to whatever threats we're facing in the future. So this is what we use to kind of piece together elements of a campaign, but also to look at the relationships between the influencer and the audience. What is the relationship between them? Let's say, for example, if China is targeting Australian audiences with politically divisive narratives, things that are very sensitive to Australian audiences about politics, maybe sensitive topics that things are topics that are debated in Australian society. You want to get to know what is the relationship between the Chinese influencers, which might be their state media, might be social media accounts ran by China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs or CCP pundits. And then what is that relationship to Australian audiences? How receptive are these audiences to these particular influencers and platforms? Um, and so analyzing the relationship really hones in and gives us a big picture of how vulnerable is this audience to this particular narrative? How likely is it that Chinese influencers are going to be able to infiltrate Australian social media, pose as Australians, and then try to convince audiences to maybe vote one way or another? Or maybe the goal is just to divide society and divide people between parties or politicians and cause kind of chaos and conflict. So the diamond model helps enable us to kind of analyze all those various aspects. It, it helped me understand the back end of what you, you all do in the, in the analyst realm really, really well. That white paper that Gabe just shared uh, for anyone listening on the audio only version. We'll link that white paper because it's a fantastic white paper that Recorded Future have released. I particularly love down further in the white paper, it talks about operationalizing the diamond model, and it gives a great example or practical application where China and COVID-19 is the, the narrative there. And it talks through how the during a COVID-19 outbreak in internal to China, they used the narrative that 300 US military members brought COVID-19. Here it's coming up on the screen for everyone looking now. I think it's page 11, Gabe, how the 700 US folks spread and brought COVID-19 to Wuhan. And then it was spread by some Chinese political folks on all their social platforms as well. So I found that really interesting that the practical applications were leveraged in the white paper as well. So it wasn't just talking about the dime model. It showed you how it was applicable to some recent findings as well. Yeah, it's really interesting to looking back on the past couple of years of 
and, and just to watch how China's influencers and propaganda department have changed their tactics. For example, this year, for the fir- well, in 2022, for the first time that we've observed, we saw China's influencers trying to divide U.S. voters by using very politically divisive topics, criticizing U.S. government, and kind of trying to dismay U.S. voters, which is a particular tactic that malign influencers use. They'll try to convince the voters that voting is not even worth it, that the political system is so messed up, or that maybe they'll even make up lies and say that voting devices and technology is hackable and vulnerable and um, not working properly. And then people will feel like, oh, maybe it's not even worth it for me to go vote. I mean, my vote doesn't really matter anyway. And that can have a significant impact on constituencies, elections, and much more, unfortunately. We don't think that the election interference that we observed in 2022 had a significant impact on the U.S. elections this year, but we do expect that they will continue changing tactics to find what does work. Yeah, and we saw a few mega interferences even before the most recent one to charity, which we were all pretty familiar with. But just back on the diamond model, I find it really interesting that iteration does include the narrative and the story. It's mm. It's a really interesting psychological element to how that narrative can shift. And it's being really purposely driven by those nation state actors, the cyber criminals and the like. And interesting here locally, we have recently appointed a senator to actually look into that. Shout out to James Patterson. Love to get him on a dark mode episode. And he's very intertwined. Influence ops. I like what he did there, Gabe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But yeah, certainly a big threat to democracy. I think one of the bigger threats in our modern era, because when you really convince, you spoke about the propaganda that's been around for who knows how far back there's been, that's been a really key current and an undertone in terms of the adversarial nature of not only military domain, but in society as well. So I actually wanted to ask you, Charity, just on the diamond model and on that last point, the capabilities part of that technical axis of the diamond model, but do you see Uh, common parts of infrastructure and capabilities being used by different nation states. We know that there's a lot of disinformation being deployed by botnets and there's a a lot of proliferation on the social media accounts. There's an inability a lot of the time for the general public to really ascertain and have that media literacy associated with critically thinking about what they're observing. But it just feels like it's a really big threat to just the general fabric of our society when those mm-hmm. narratives are being really purposely depo- deployed on things where we're connected 24-7 and mm-hmm. fake news spreads very, very quickly. So do you observe a difference in what accounts are being used, what infrastructure is used, you know, different new, te- different new tactics and techniques being deployed as we emerge and we keep pace of this? Yes, they're, the influencers are always coming up with new ways to get a hold of audiences. And so what we try to determine is what are their target audiences? Because at one point, it seemed like China was just throwing the pro-China narratives out across the whole world. And they're also partnering their state-owned media with other countries' state-owned media so that there's actually no 
review process, the Chinese state media just hands over stories to the other countries and they publish it either in print form or TV form without any type of editorial review, like fact-checking. So they just kind of accept it as is and then uh, disseminate it to their local populations. And we see that especially in the global South. So Latin America, Africa, South Asia. But over the past couple of years, they, I think all of the nation state influencers have become more strategic. They are honing in on specific audiences. And our team, I have some great coworkers that also analyze uh, what is the CCP propaganda department? What are their priorities? And we see them talking about precise communication, honing in on young people. And in my head, I'm thinking teenagers, but they consider everyone that is basically a millennial or younger as being a young person. So I just turned 40. I'm like, do I count? I think I'm an elder <laughs> millennial. <laughs> but um, so we know that they're trying to target people that have power, people that are, let's say, voting and also future generations to be to see China in a more positive light and to go easier on them because China always has the long game in mind. They're looking 10, 20 years down the road of how can we continue to grow on our path and not be interrupted by people in America or in the Five Eyes community, like Australia, Canada, Great Britain, who might be hostile towards China. So it's interesting to see how they are really honing in on target audiences. And so they analyze where are those audiences spending their time? Is it on particular social media, text-based? Is it Facebook? Is it YouTube? And now they're starting to pivot over to video platforms like TikTok. Um, and of course, China has their, their own version of TikTok called Douyin. And a lot of those narratives start on Douyin and then they spread over to TikTok as well and hit more global audiences. So we see them using new technology. We see them using AI and deep fake to create videos and photos. And very recently, I wanna tell you guys about a campaign that we observed last month. Protests broke out in China. Um, people took to the streets to protest the Chinese government and their lockdown and quarantine procedures because they've been going through this for a couple of years now. So it's, it really has worn on, on their communities. Um, and so they took to the streets. And of course, everyone's holding their breath like, oh no, is this going to be another 1989 Tiananmen Square incident? Are they going to roll out tanks and shut down these protests? Or they, are the, is the government going to ease up? And to be honest, very few... China experts expected them to ease up like they did. Um, so we think the protests did have some kind of impact. But while this is unfolding in China, where they are able to censor the media and censor social media and keep people in China kind of in a bubble, they can't do that in foreign social media and media. So what they did instead is they kind of used a DDoS method on social media, they 
what we think is very likely the Chinese government or a state-sponsored operation was creating thousands of social media accounts at a time and spreading spam on social media using hashtags of the cities in China where the protests were breaking out. So let's say they would, and by the way, they were using the Chinese characters, not the English letters like spelled out like Beijing or Shanghai. It was all in Chinese because they know that people are on social media searching those hashtags to find out what's going on around China. And even people in China who are not allowed to use U.S. mainstream social media, they were finding ways to, you know, use a VPN and get on those social media platforms to try to find out what's going on over there, what's going on over here. And so these automated spam bot accounts were flooding social media platforms with hundreds of thousands of posts every hour, drowning out the conversation of the protests with really spammy content, escort services, pornography, all types of weird business ad graphics. And they were essentially just trying to shut down those conversations and, again, dismay the audience that might be looking for answers. Well, so they were weaponizing the hashtags through automated bot activity to basically yes. drown out the reality of what was happening through a different, exactly. like, spammy. Wow. That's a technique That's a we call hashtag hijacking. Russia has done it. Uh, China's done it. It's becoming more common because they know they can kind of control the narrative about what's happening. And in this case, I think they determined there's no way we can shut down conversation about the protests. So instead, let's just drown it out so people won't be able to find answers as quickly. They understand the algorithm all too well, and they know they can drown out echo chambers by flooding that algorithm. I think that's a yes. wild concept to me. You can weaponize social media to impact so dramatically and so quickly events that are occurring. That, that to me is such a, it's just a wild concept. That is a, it's a combative nature for a digital element that everyone uses. Yeah. And one big aspect of this campaign that makes Western audiences vulnerable is that our adversaries know that we have a very unrestricted social media environment. That freedom that we protect so strongly is also a vulnerability for us, is that they know they can create a fake profile, pretend to be uh, an Australian or an American or Canadian or whoever, and try to get in there and infiltrate our spaces with their own narratives. So there's a lot of people all over the world trying to figure out how to combat that. <laughs> how yeah, do we balance absolutely. freedom of speech and also protect audiences from malign influence? Charity, a very simple question, but it begs the question, how, what, why did China do this? Well, if we are correct that it was a state-sponsored operation, they are trying to protect their reputation. China always prioritizes their own interests. Unlike Russia, who sometimes will target U.S. elections just to divide American society and try to tear them down, 
China prioritizes their own objectives. And part of that is to maintain a good reputation in the world. Um, they are trying to build economic partnerships and political partnerships. They're trying to protect their interest in the in you know their one China policy that they stand very firm that Taiwan is an inalienable part of China, whereas we are trying to arm Taiwan with what they need to defend themselves and maintain independence from mainland China. So they're trying to convince partners around the world that Taiwan is part of China, don't mess with them, and also trying to maintain this reputation of, hey, we have come so far. Look at everything we've provided for the Chinese people. We've created a stronger economy, a middle class. And we believe, speaking as the CCP, they believe that they are creating kind of a, a healthier society than maybe what the West has. And so ultimately it comes down to protecting their reputation. They don't want to be seen as the same CCP that cracked down on protesters in 1989. While they brag that, hey, we are a very responsible government and we take care of our people by protecting them from getting COVID, that's their perspective of their rules. The West portrays them as, oh, you know, you don't give your people any freedom. It's just so strict that people can't even leave their buildings. They can't leave their workplaces. They get locked down, you know. Um, so they're trying to counter the criticism, basically. Yeah, so it's very ideological and nationalistic-driven motivation. And we read a lot, a lot of public information on the century of humiliation and China emerging as a, a powerful player in the global order and things like this. But I certainly think there's a lot of those spies and lies undertones to those covert operations fooling the world and having those narratives so yes very interesting so like for right now they're probably i i I don't i don't want to speculate but in the past we know there's been some discrepancies between how many people are actually dying from covid in china and how many are being reported and i've seen some pretty great evidence to prove that there's a huge discrepancy and so we would guess that it would be to protect their reputation as a government and not kind of, you know, get ran over by Western media accusing them of being irresponsible. Trady, did we see malign influence in the Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan last year? Was that, to me, I saw a lot of information that was coming from Chinese-sponsored media damning the visit trying to influence the narrative at that time. Is that a good example of malign influence for beyond the protection of the Chinese uh, internals? Yes, they do have, oh man, they went hard against Nancy Pelosi and they warned about it ahead of time. If she goes to Taiwan, there will be consequences. And unfortunately there were military exercises that simulated, um, you know, a, a, takeover of Taiwan. They surrounded Taiwan, live fire missiles over Taipei. But when it came to influence operations, we saw a huge spike in mentions of Nancy Pelosi out of Chinese state media and social media accounts from, let's say, government officials out of China. Very critical. 
of Nancy Pelosi, even attacking her husband and his business dealings, accusing them of some narratives that were already going around about them having personal interests in financial investments in Taiwanese chip companies. So they went that angle. And then they also went deeper politically. And keep in mind, this happened during a election season. Our midterm elections happened in November, and her visit was at the beginning of August. They continued to criticize her policies for her home state and her district that she represents as a, a representative and, um, you know, criticized how her area of California had a homelessness problem and drug problems and inflation and things like that. So they targeted her at a personal and political level. And then they kind of tied that back into the more strategic narratives about how the U.S. is trying to stir up trouble between China and Taiwan. It was fascinating to me that it all ended after the visit. The narrative sort of just stopped. Yeah, within a week, those spikes had gone down to pre-Taiwan visit levels, for sure. I was going to say, I thought that was a really cool example. And while you were talking, I wondered if, if that was the case. And it's all making sense to me now that I understand it. Yeah, and what they're doing is they're trying to protect their own interests. They're saying, hey, we're not the troublemakers here. Look at what the U.S. is doing. This is very irresponsible. They're confusing everyone on where do they actually stand with the one China policy. And granted, there is some confusion there. I mean, the U.S. government is not perfect all the time, and we can do better at communicating what we actually do stand for. Then again, President Biden and his administration doesn't want to change the status quo. So that's where China is kind of being confrontational is, hey, let's talk about what you're doing with Taiwan and trying to throw U.S. under the bus, trying to make the U.S. look bad to everyone else in the world. It's a hotly contested issue when it gets to the minds of the, of the public domain, though, because people are then like, oh, how do I understand this? What's the political reason for this? It sounds very daunting. So mm -hmm. then you sort of spike straight over to the side of like extremist views and conspiracy theories. Then it's almost as just, it just puts more fuel on the fire. <laughs> yeah. Uh, analyzing conspiracy theories is a, uh, the black hole. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. Right. I literally, I read everyone knows I'm a big reader and I'd like to actually on the last discussion point, recommend two books, Chip War by Chris Miller, talking about the powers between the US and China on this and the semiconductors and of course where technology is going and then Spies and Lies by Alex Josk Australian guy actually very very interesting yes yeah but uh, have you read that, those charity you're familiar with? I have not read Alex's book yet but I've met him before he's wonderful and I've heard so many good things about his book so I'm looking forward to Great. reading that yeah I'm halfway through that one so we'll have to have a little book club meeting about it get Alex yes. on, a, on a potty yeah and then I just wanted to mention on the conspiracy theory side, at the side of the year, I read Rise of the Extreme Right by Lydia Khalil. And that was mm. like, uh, along with the QAnon book. So I read both of those at the same time. And I was just like, this whole, exactly like you said, Charity, conspiracy theories just take you down a really deep black hole. And it's just like, wow. But it was also really interesting to see the links between a lot of things as well, like the Capitol building being stormed 
lots of stuff that you see online, the extremist views out of the social media profiles. And yeah, it's just like a very, very dark hole. <laughs> we yes. Should, we should do another episode on that topic. Yeah. I, after the insurrection in the US, I, I took a step back from domestic conspiracy theory stuff because it was very mentally tasking oh, to yeah. be very real with you. Yeah. Reading this stuff and trolling hate forums um, and just yeah. the nastiest places on the internet. It was just really discouraging to see how much hate is out there. But then, you know, to kind of log off at the end of the day and realize that most people in the world do not subscribe to these beliefs is comforting. And so we're trying to we're trying to help fact check. We're trying to help put out real intelligence and real authentic information about the truth. And we're hoping that people will start to understand that it's very important to select your sources carefully and to understand that some of these conspiracy theories, while there may be an element of truth in them, most of it is exaggeration, false information, or very unlikely to actually be real or happen in our world. So it's very easy to get caught up in it. Of course, we all watch TV and there's these cool action adventure and mystery shows. And we're like, oh, what if that, what if there is a, well, I shouldn't go into details, but you know, <laughs> QAnon type theory, a yeah. global cabal taking over the world, but we can look at what we actually know. And there's so much open source information out there to actually find the truth. Yeah, exactly. Charity, I want to just ask about what's the go with the TikTok da data harvesting? So I can't speak for TikTok, but I can say that U.S. government is working really hard at holding TikTok accountable for being transparent and being truthful about what information they do collect. Um, from what I've seen from their terms of service, they are collecting as much information about us as many other apps, unfortunately. I did an inventory of my son. He's 13. He has an iPhone. And I did an inventory of apps and his security settings. And I was very shocked to see how many apps have full access to photo albums, contact lists, and so much more. So whereas everyone is very hyper-focused on TikTok, and I do think it's important to know the truth about what information is being collected in the app, I think there's other apps that we need to explore as well. Yeah. We need to keep our eyes open. Yeah, absolutely. Great pro tip to set those security and privacy settings on the phones as well. I'm giving a presentation in two weeks for our Australian Computer Society, and it's on that cyber resiliency. And one of the takeaways will be, here's a demo literally of like how to toggle those privacy settings, because you're right, a lot of the apps do collect as much data. And big shout out to our friend Dave Robinson over at the Internet 2.0 team. Charity, you'll find this really interesting, so we'll definitely send you a link. But those guys are actually doing that audit and looking at the scoring on how much data is collected and the security status of all of the mobile applications that are really mainstream, everything from Signal to Messenger to TikTok and the like. So they're actually publishing studies around this exact area. 
So find oh, that's those really awesome. Literally just this week, they started releasing an app a day as of Monday. So really, really interesting. Wow. Called Melt. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. I have you read any parent. of those, Ben? I have. I read the yeah. uh, the Facebook Messenger one. I so when we when we did the episode with Dave Robinson, he asked what we thought the one of the worst apps would be, excluding TikTok. And my first response was Meta and all the Meta apps, and was pleasantly shocked and educated in that uh, it's one of the most secure by design apps uh, that that is listed on on the the Malcor presentation. So it's really interesting to see. I've read a few of them now, and I think they're just great resources. Yeah. Jared, just quickly on TikTok. You made a good point before that I think there's more apps that we need to be concerned about. I like that TikTok is being used as the education platform for the wider audience to understand that applications need review, not just clicking accept the terms and conditions. Those terms and conditions, if you read some of them, like Microsoft's Cortana is one of the, the most wild ones as well. It has access to everything on your PC. Um, I just find that it's phenomenal how brazen we are with clicking accept terms and conditions without review and by design they make them lengthy so that we do just click accepts and for mobile applications we've lived in an era where mobile applications are fairly new and we just ex we expect or there's an expectation set that it is for the better and it is being used for good the data collection so i think now with the rise of tiktok and the milan pieces to tiktok and the data harvesting we're all going to be better for the understanding that applications need review personally and privately prior to downloading. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, actually, I think it's actually even, Ben, on that last point, what I find really interesting on a local example, and we've seen this with the really large data breaches with Medibank and Optus recently, that things like the privacy law, which in Australia, the Privacy Act was established in 1988, for example, now that's actually being reviewed and reformed because it's even the example on more of a daily basis is if I go into a new cafe and I order a bagel and for some whatever reason and some cafes do this they require my like address date of birth you know it's a bit of an extreme over exaggeration but it's like why do they need to collect literally my full name my email address my number for me to order something from the local cafe so it's even those examples real time is questioning, well, you don't actually need to have those that information and that data collected for that service. And similarly, on a lot of these mobile applications, you're right, they're pretty new in the grand scheme of things and reviewing those and potentially now that we're in having these conversations and socializing it a lot more, it's bringing the conversation to the forefront and saying, well, hang on, you actually don't need to download the app and have the default setting access to the photo album because that's just completely unnecessary. So... Yeah. What are, your, what are your thoughts, Charity, on that? I'm just thinking about things I've been through with my kids the past few weeks. It's been pretty tough because they're young teenagers and I've raised them to know better than to share personal information, dates of birth, things like that. But it takes a lot of repetition to drill it into their minds. And unfortunately, I think my son had to learn the hard way. He was social engineered this past weekend and I had to scramble and figure out like was his Instagram hacked or did he give away some information about himself how did this happen um but you know he he learned a hard lesson and he said oh my god mom I had no idea that people could do this and and I I told him hey you know 
there's a whole industry of people working to help protect you from things like this, but ultimately you have to be responsible for your behavior online too. You have to make sure that you understand the security settings on your phone. Otherwise, you're not old enough or responsible enough to have this device. So tough lessons. I, I think I'm not too hard on my kids, but I try to inform them and educate them as we grow and as they grow. But I do periodic inventory, just like I would if I worked on a security team looking at assets. I just said, hey, I'm going to go through your phone. They have to request approval if they want to download an app. But once I give them that approval, they have to be responsible enough to go in there and limit the settings so that they're not sharing their location all the time or they're not sharing access to the contact list and photos, for example. And so we had to go through and change those settings on their iPhones. But also I had to look at a few different apps, look at who their developers are, where they're based out of. And ultimately, I had to make an executive decision and say, hey, uh, I know you like this for editing photos, but there's a safer alternative <laughs> and lead him yeah. towards the safer alternatives. Nice. It sounds like very sage, motherly executive advice, if I may say so myself, Charity. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm just trying to do my best <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. without them hating me too much. <laughs> it's also the rise of the digital natives too. just very quickly. Yep download, accept, quick, quick. It's all instantaneous. I think for all of us being veterans as well, you we very much get inculcated in that security is absolutely everybody's responsibility. You have that, it's more, it's that mindset and absolutely having those conversations with new generations, particularly digital natives and, and the, the very, very young ones now literally growing up with a phone. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely having those conversations. Yes. So. Yeah, My daughter's was... 10 years old, just quickly gave, and we got her her first Apple Watch recently. And uh, it was a couple of weeks left of school towards the back end of last year. And I put on school mode and put all these settings in. And school mode essentially means that they can't text. They can't use it in school hours except as a watch. And it was my daughter starts at 8 o'clock. So school mode kicked on at 8 o'clock. 8.15, I get a text message from her. I'm like, what? How do you do that? She goes, oh, I've worked out how to disable it. I just wanted to say hi. <laughs> oh, future hacker. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that certainly sounds like Penelope and not hard. Tell me I'm right. It was hard, actually. Was that's, it? That was, wow. yeah. Yeah. That's, sure. that's a scarier thought, Ben. You've got two, two junior hackers on your hands. So my yeah. uh, inventory of apps is going to be conducted nightly by the sounds of that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing the personal story there as well, Charity. Much appreciated. Yes. I had only one more question, Charity, but very topical at the moment. What are your trusted sources of information? Mm. Well, I like to default to the media bias chart for media and news in general. That is something that a company called AdFontes produces, and they update it pretty regularly. So if you Google media bias chart, you'll see. Now, a lot of it is like U.S.-based or Western, so, uh, Western media. But you can kind of assess and see how the chart is built. It's built on integrity of information and political bias. So I tend to choose those sources that are very politically unbiased and just stating facts. So that tends to be AP, Reuters, and uh, some of those like in the middle, BBC is a good one. Um, 
AP and Reuters have their own fact-checking departments. And so is Adfontes, the company that makes the bias chart. And I find it interesting that they have these awesome teams of, of people that check each other's bias as well. Very diverse wow. teams with different worldviews and viewpoints. And they check each other on, okay, I think this could be slightly this way, or, you know, they do, they have a review process. So I find it to be pretty accurate. Fantastic pro tip, Charity. And Ben, thank you for joining, for showing that on the yeah. video as well. Definitely going to my mind. Yeah. yeah. And also trusting um, reputable sources of intelligence. So we have, you know, recorded futures where I work and, and we have intelligence reports on our website that are available to the public, but also there are tons of other companies out there that put out great work, great reports, not just on cyber threats, but also on malign influence threats, uh, as well as academics, like really strong academic departments that research these things. And the reason I recommend these sources is because they cite their sources and they refer you directly to where the facts come from. You can look at the study, read how the study was conducted, and determine if it meets your standards for truth. So uh, I highly recommend trust the sources that provide their own citations and sources. Great advice. Again, sage advice. <laughs> no, that's Rather amazing. than hearsay that you find on, <laughs> let's say, I don't know, what forum? Reddit. I mean, Reddit's yeah. okay, but, you know. It's just people sharing opinions and information with each other. Uh, honestly, Charity, I have learned a lot in this episode. I bookmarked three different things already, which is a record for bookmarks during an episode recording. So thank you so much for that. The audience, I have no doubt, has learned a lot as well. So we really appreciate your time and spending it with us on dark mode. And we hope to get you back for a second episode at some point in time because I would really enjoy that. This has been a true pleasure. Thank you so much. I look forward to speaking to you guys again soon. Amazing. Thanks so much, Thanks, Charity. Charity.